You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Our seventh lecture is entitled The Dependence of the Common Good on Public Policy, Civil Society, and Law. I'm just going to make a few comments on public policy and civil society and spend most of this time discussing the role of law in promoting the common good. Most everyone understands that public policy on a wide range of issues is very important in promoting the common good. Hardly anyone needs to be convinced of that. Examples of public policy issues are the life questions, you know, abortion, death penalty, euthanasia, cloning, the economy, the environment, sources of energy, global warming, tax policy, civil liberties, anti-terrorism measures, discrimination, affirmative action, racism, foreign policy. You can add your own list of things. Now, good public policy provides structural solutions to problems that every society faces. It is something that people interested in social justice rightly focus on. Now, except for the life questions and just war theory, it's not my intention to discuss all these relevant issues. It would take much too long and would really detract from becoming familiar with the fundamental principles of Catholic social teaching. In my major discussion of the culture of life and death and just war theory will be in subsequent lectures. I would just say this, that all the pertinent issues of policy should be evaluated in the light of Catholic social teaching on the dignity of the human person and the common good. Evaluating issues in the light of Catholic social teachings means that one should recognize that neither the Republican nor the Democratic Party may get everything right. Now, except for clear evils such as abortion and euthanasia, reasonable Catholics may legitimately disagree on which policy best serves the common good. You know, there is no way that we could say that there was a specific tax cut, for example, that would be required by Catholic social teaching. You know, that's a judgment of prudence really based on the facts, and people will, of course, disagree on the assessment of the facts, and therefore they will come up with different positions on what would be the most advantageous tax policy in order to promote a good economy. Now, with respect to civil society, let me say just this, that the concept of civil society refers to all the non-governmental associations that act as seedbeds of virtue. These are families, churches, and voluntary associations. All three are known as mediating institutions. Healthy families and churches especially educate individuals to practice virtue 
in every aspect of their lives and thus to realize their dignity. There's even much talk in secular circles about all that the family does for its members. The happiness of the spouses, the well-being of children, their physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual well-being. And of course, many writers have directed attention to the consequences of family breakdown, you know, juvenile delinquency, etc. Now, churches teach the faith and morality, the practice of which has a good effect on society. In Leo XIII's words, if human society is to be healed, only a return to Christian life and practices will heal it. He says this because religion addresses the root causes of political problems. And then you've all heard of the term faith-based institutions. Think of Catholic schools and hospitals and what they do for a community and what more they could do if they were better funded. Now, Catholic social thought treats the subject of mediating institutions under the concept of subsidiarity. Pius XI has probably given the most well-known description of subsidiarity in his 1931 encyclical Quadragesimo Anno. And he wrote, just as it is wrong to withdraw from the individual and commit to a group what private industry and enterprise can accomplish, so too it is an injustice, a grave evil and a disturbance of right order for a larger and higher association to arrogate to itself functions which can be performed efficiently by smaller and lower societies. This is a fundamental principle of social philosophy, unshaken and unchangeable. Of its nature, the true aim of all social activity should be to help members of the social body, but never to destroy or absorb them. This means that individuals and voluntary associations should do whatever they can do before the responsibilities are turned over to the government. And lower levels of government should do things that they can do before going to the upper levels of government. This way, if the principle of subsidiarity is respected, then there is going to be community and participation at all levels of society, both inside the government and outside the government. Now, in my written text, I will say more about the ways the civil society contributes to the common good. Now, let's turn our attention to the dependence of the common good on law. Toward the end of chapter three in his encyclical, The Gospel of Life, Pope John Paul II reflects on the role of law in a democracy. He begins by addressing the argument that the legal system of any society should limit itself to taking account of and accepting the convictions of the majority. This means that the moral beliefs and practices of the majority should be the norm, whatever they might be. This way of looking at things requires the legislature to acknowledge the autonomy of individual consciences. In other words, individuals may claim for themselves the most complete freedom of choice, and they may demand that the state should not adopt or impose any ethical position, but limit itself to guaranteeing maximum space for the freedom of each individual with the sole limitation of not infringing on the freedom and rights of any other citizen. 
Some go so far as to say that public officials and professionals should set aside their own constitutional beliefs in order to accommodate the demands of citizens, which are recognized and guaranteed by the law. For example, if euthanasia were legal, the argument runs, physicians should help people end their lives, no matter what their personal convictions are. Now, the Pope, of course, is not happy with all those kinds of arguments. He believes that ethical relativism, which characterizes much of present-day culture, lies at the basis of the argument just presented. The Pope rightly believes that people consider such relativism an essential condition of democracy, inasmuch as it alone is held to guarantee tolerance, mutual respect between people, and acceptance of the decisions of the majority. Whereas moral norms considered to be objective and binding are held to lead to authoritarianism and intolerance. The Pope grants that crimes have been committed in the name of truth, but they also have been authorized in the name of ethical relativism by individual tyrants and popular consensus. The legal permission to kill the unborn is really a tyrannical decision by the strong against the weakest and most defenseless of human beings. The Pope argues that the democratic process is a means and not an end in itself. Every democracy must be evaluated by the goods and moral principles which it embodies and promotes. A good democracy is not neutral with respect to values or principles. The basis of these values or principles cannot be provisional and changeable majority opinions, but only the acknowledgement of an objective moral law which as the natural law written in the human heart is the obligatory reference for civil law itself. The Pope is not arguing that the moral law and civil law should correspond in every respect. The purpose of the latter is more limited in scope. Following Vatican II's Declaration on Religious Liberty, the Pope says that the purpose of the civil law is to ensure that the common good of the people through the recognition and defense of their fundamental rights and the promotion of peace and public morality, as well as through an ordered social existence and true justice, which allows individuals to perform their duties and live a godly existence. The civil law, however, must never take the place of conscience or attempt to govern outside its competence. The pontiff then quotes John XXIII and Thomas Aquinas in order to affirm that civil laws in opposition to the moral order or right reason are unjust laws. Such are laws permitting and promoting abortion and euthanasia. These practices are not only opposed to the good of individuals, but to the common good. Disregard for the right to life, precisely because it leads to the killing of the person whom society exists to serve, is what most directly conflicts with the possibility of achieving the common good. It is most important to note that according to John Paul II, the common good is a standard and a goal of the civil law. Not that individuals in mediating institutions don't also have a role in promoting the common good. Some Catholic scholars say that the scope of the civil law is limited to the promotion of the public order as described in the Declaration on Religious Freedom. They further dispute the authority of the government to limit freedom through law on the basis of the common good. The Pope rightly disagrees with this position. As mentioned in a previous lecture, 
Gaudi Metzpez, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, affirms that the political community exists for the common good, which embraces the sum of those conditions of social life by which individuals, families, and groups can achieve their own perfection in a relatively thorough and ready way. The political community, of course, relies on the law in various ways to achieve its end. It also relies on other instruments as well, such as mediating institutions and the mores, you know, that is, the customs. Now, in order to further clarify the role and scope of the law in promoting the common good, I would like to examine a few parts of Marianne Glendon's work, Abortion and Divorce in Western Law, American Failures, European Challenges. In the introduction to her book, she reminds her readers of Plato's teaching in The Laws that the aim of law is to lead the citizens toward virtue to make them noble and wise. This notion of law, she adds, is not popular in the United States where most scholars look at law as a command backed up by organized coercion. Glendon believes that Plato's insight into the law can still help us today. She approvingly quotes James Boyd White, who says that law is most usefully seen not as a system of rules, but as a branch of rhetoric, as the central art by which community and culture are established, maintained, and transformed. Glendon adds that the law tells stories about the culture that help to shape it, which it in turn helps to shape. Stories about who we are, where we come from, and where we are going. Law is constitutive of society when legal language and legal concepts begin to affect ordinary language and to influence the manner in which we perceive reality. Think of how law has conditioned Americans to think about morality more in terms of rights than in terms of duties. Or consider how the Supreme Court abortion decision in 1973 eventually induced more people to accept the notion of a right to abortion. London gives a wonderful example of how law is educational in her summary of the law on marriage. She says this, the American story about marriage as told in the law and in much popular literature goes something like this. Marriage is a relationship that exists primarily for the fulfillment of the individual spouses. If it ceases to perform this function, no one is to blame and either spouse may terminate it at will. After divorce, each spouse is expected to be self-sufficient. If this is not possible with the aid of property division, some rehabilitative maintenance may be in order for a temporary period. Children hardly appear in the story. At most, they are rather shadowy characters in the background. Other stories, of course, are still vigorous in American culture about marriage as a union for life, for better or worse, even in sickness or poverty stories about taking on responsibilities and carrying through, and about parenthood as an awesome commitment. But by and large, they are not the ones that have been incorporated into the law. In the continuing cultural conversation about marriage and family life, American law has weighed in heavily on the side of individual self-fulfillment. It tells us that if a marriage no longer suits our needs, or if the continuation of a pregnancy would not fit in with our plans right now, we can choose to sever the relationship." End quote. Now, in most European countries, even where there are liberalized divorce laws, they still try to reinforce the idea of marriage as a serious and durable commitment. 
Now, these reflections by Professor Glendon should inspire us to imagine the educational role law could play in various aspects of life. Consider the effects of civil rights legislation in the 1960s. These laws made racist behavior illegal and stigmatized it as immoral. Even when law doesn't command, say, fidelity in marriage to death, it could still persuade people to think of marriage as a permanent commitment. Tax policy could be so framed as to reward people who don't divorce or who have children. Other laws could discourage divorce or make it more difficult. In Europe right now, because of the low population rate, some of the countries are actually encouraging and giving financial incentives to people to have children. As things stand, there is a consensus in the United States to limit abortion on demand. Now, that consensus cannot yet have an effect while Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. Roe's declaration on, of abortion as a constitutional right takes precedence over any other kind of law. Now, in the next section of my lecture, let's look at some of the arguments used by Catholic social thought to show that abortion simply cannot be a private choice, but should be against the law. The Catholic Church does oppose abortion on religious grounds, as do people of other faiths. The Church, however, also teaches that the widespread practice of abortion is a matter of public concern, and therefore cannot be removed from public debate by labeling it a private choice. Abortion is further a question of public morality, and not simply a religious issue. Abortion is not like tax policy about which reasonable people could disagree. Now, abortion destroys an unborn child, a human being with potential, not a potential human being. Abortion should thus be no more a matter of personal choice than torture, racism, the intentional killing of the innocent in war, terrorism, perjury, theft, rape, slavery. Catholic politicians who support abortion have said over and over that their personal opposition to abortion must not influence their policy views. The absurdity of that position is suggested by imagining a politician saying, I am personally opposed to child abuse, but will not impose my personal morality on others. It is also illogical for politicians to say that abortion is not a fit subject for public policy because opposition to abortion is based on religious convictions and then take pride in their own religiously grounded support for social programs to help the needy. Those supporting a right to abortion should explain why abortion is not wrong or why personal choice should outweigh the evil of abortion, or why abortion is one of those evils that the government should not attempt to prevent. That would be a more honest way of arguing. Some do argue that no one can ever know for sure whether the fetus is a person from the moment of conception. Neither philosophy, nor theology, nor science, or the argument runs can ever definitively resolve the question. The Vatican statement on procured abortion responds, quote, from a moral point of view, this is certain, even if a doubt existed concerning whether the fruit of conception is already a person, it is objectively a grave sin to dare to risk murder. Even the civil law does not allow a person to act in a reckless manner and thereby endanger someone's life. You cannot shoot a bullet through a closed door, wound or kill someone, and then claim immunity from prosecution because of ignorance. Now, I am certainly aware that not every evil should be proscribed by law. As Thomas Aquinas said, human law is framed for a number of human beings, the majority of whom are not perfect in virtue. 
Wherefore, human laws do not forbid all vices from which the virtuous abstain, but only the more grievous vices from which it is possible for the majority to abstain, and chiefly those that are to the hurt of others, without the prohibition of which human society could not be maintained. Thus, human law prohibits murder, theft, and such like." End quote from Aquinas. Since abortion does hurt another human being, the child in the womb, it is a fit subject for legislation. Public debate on abortion is focused primarily on the rights of the fetus versus the right to privacy of the woman. There are other serious considerations that need more attention. First, Socrates told us that to do an injustice is worse than to suffer one. Abortions not only violate the rights of fetuses, but also injure those who perform them, have them, or simply stand by and allow them to continue. Human beings are so constituted that if they kill their offspring, they do even more serious injury to themselves. Some of the reasons advanced to justify abortion are the same used now and in the past to justify infanticide, suicide, and euthanasia. For example, killing handicapped children by omitting corrective surgery and or failure to feed has been justified by doctors and ethicists on these grounds. The lives of handicapped children are a burden both on themselves and on others, including parents, siblings, and society. People are beginning to say openly that they will seriously consider suicide if life becomes too burdensome or if they become a burden to others. There is, of course, an oft-noted irony in this kind of argument. Those who talk of committing suicide out of love for their family and friends are subtly putting pressure on their loved ones to do the same for them. Now, if the practice of abortion continues, there will very likely be increasing pressure on society and the law to sanction infanticide and euthanasia. Peter Singer, prominent ethicist at Princeton, has made an argument for infanticide. You know, he said, if we're going to do abortion, he said, well, why not infanticide? You know, what's the difference between the two? Now, most people would say there is a very big difference, but Singer, a widely respected ethicist, you know, makes that argument. To stem the tide of abortion really is to take a public stand against a skewed notion of self-determination. Relativism, both in ethical theory and political life, has led to a greatly exaggerated stress on autonomy in personal actions, to the detriment even of one's family, friends, and society. Who is to judge whether the fetus is a human being or whether a certain material is pornographic, asked the liberal. On this point, Harvard philosopher Michael Sandel has given one appropriate response. Quote, it is a question that can be asked of the values that liberals defend. Toleration and freedom and fairness are values too, and they can hardly be defended by the claim that no values can be defended. So it is a mistake to affirm liberal values by arguing that all values are merely subjective. Relativist defense of liberalism is no defense at all. Still another reason to oppose abortion is to reinforce the teaching that we are our brother's keeper and each and owe each person his or her due. Parenthood requires that mothers and fathers be prepared to put the needs of their children ahead of their own wants. One last argument from the pen of Walker Percy, the Catholic novelist who died several years ago. In 1988, he wrote a letter to the New York Times, which the paper chose not to publish. A part of that letter 
reads as follows. He said, certain consequences, perhaps unforeseen, follow upon the acceptance of the principle of the destruction of human life for what may appear to be the most admirable social reasons. One does not have to look back very far in history for an example of such consequences. Take democratic Germany in the 1920s. Perhaps the most influential book published in German in the first quarter of this century was entitled The Justification of the Destruction of Life Devoid of Value. Its co-authors were the distinguished jurist Karl Bindung and the prominent psychiatrist Alfred Hoch. Neither Bindung nor Hoch had ever heard of Hitler or the Nazis, nor in all likelihood that Hitler ever read the book. He didn't have to. The point is that the ideas expressed in the book and the policies advocated with a product not of Nazi ideology, but rather of the best minds of the pre-Nazi Weimar Republic, physicians, social scientists, jurists, and the like, who with the best secular intentions wish to improve the lot socially and genetically of the German people by getting rid of the unfit and the unwanted. It is hardly necessary to say what use the Nazis made of these ideas. I would not wish to be understood as implying that the respected American institutions I have named are similar to corresponding pre-Nazi institutions. But I do suggest that once the line is crossed, once the principle gains acceptance, juridically, medically, socially, innocent human life can be destroyed for whatever reason, for the most admirable socioeconomic, medical, or social reasons. Then it does not take a profit to predict what will happen next, or if not next, then sooner or later. At any rate, a warning is in order. Depending on the disposition of the majority in the opinion polls, it is not difficult to imagine an electorate or a court 10 years, 50 years from now, who would favor getting rid of useless old people, retarded children, antisocial blacks, illegal Hispanics, gypsies, Jews. Why not? If that is what is wanted by the majority, the polled opinion, the polity of the time. Sincerely yours, Walker Person. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.